Do you wish your students knew what was on the syllabus? In this episode, we'll explore how we can design a syllabus that helps us improve our course design, motivates students, and provides a cognitive map of the course that students will find useful. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Dr. Christine Harrington, a professor of history and social science at Middlesex County College and the author of Designing a Motivational Syllabus and several other books related to teaching, learning, and student success. Christine has been the executive director of the Student Success Center at the New Jersey Council of Community Colleges. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Today, our teas are... I am not drinking tea. I'm not a tea drinker. I just do water and I will do iced tea once in a while, but not at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm drinking tea forte black currant tea. And I have Prince of Wales today, mixing it up, you know. We invited you here to talk a bit about your book, Designing a Motivational Syllabus, released just this past May. And the syllabus of many faculty tends to read sort of like a legal document. And it often tends to be a bit off-putting, and some people just provide a list of topics. You have a much different approach, and it seems really productive. Could you tell us a little bit about that approach? Sure, I'd love to. Thanks so much, John. I really believe that the syllabus is an underutilized resource. As we're beginning our semester as faculty, we always are required to put together a syllabus that explains to students what the expectations of the course are. But as you mentioned, many faculty treated as a list of do's and don'ts, making sure that we're communicating what the classroom rules and expectations are and maybe the course topics, but it often starts and stops there. So I really think that it's an opportunity for us to invite students to our course. And Ken Bain is actually someone who's written a lot about this as well, you know, inviting them to the feast. I think that's what we want to do. We want to give them the excitement and passion that we feel as faculty and get them really excited about the course too. So one of the areas I saw as a gap or missing in the literature was the motivational angle of the syllabus. In addition to providing some really good resources and providing a course map to students, I think we can motivate our students through communicating our passion, telling them a little bit more about what to expect in the course in a more conversational style, by the words that we use, by the images that we include on the syllabus, and then also providing them really helpful information so that they view this as a course that they're excited about and they will feel supported in. We actually had Ken Bain here about 12 years ago, I believe it was, and he gave an all-day workshop on building a syllabus. And I attended mm -hmm, that, and mm -hmm. it was wonderful. Much of your book reminds me of that, but you also go quite a bit further and provide a lot more suggestions and details. So I like your approach. Could you tell us a little bit more about how the syllabus serves as an entry point to course design or redesign? Sure. I think that for many of us, the idea of redesigning or designing a course for the first time even is quite daunting and overwhelming to really think about how to engage our students and achieve all of our course learning outcomes. So I've used the syllabus as a vehicle for that, as an entry point that I find that faculty find it a little easier if you're working with a more concrete practical document to help them understand course design. 
Now, I have been accused by some of my colleagues of doing the old switch and bait. You know, I did a syllabus workshop that really was a course design workshop. And they're like, wait a minute, I I think uh, you tricked me here. And I said, no, I didn't. I told you you're talking about the syllabus. And if you're going to talk about and think about what kinds of assignments and assessments you're going to use, this is course design. So you need to have a larger conversation. So I said it's an easier way for faculty to begin the dialogue and really take a good deep look at, well, what is it that I'm asking students to do and how does this fit into the overall course as well as the overall program that the course fits within? So seeing the larger picture in terms of the course and program learning outcomes and revisiting the assignments and assessments and perhaps moving away from some of the always have done this kinds of assignments, you know, traditional exam, paper, presentation that almost all of us have in our course in one way or another doesn't mean you have to abandon ship, but it is a great opportunity to step back and say, wait a minute, are these the assessment tools that are really going to help support student learning and help ensure that they're going to achieve the learning outcomes that we set forth in the syllabus? And then the syllabus really becomes the map for students. So it is the document that communicates the design of your course. As you are crafting your syllabus, you're really thinking about what is it that I'm asking students to do? Why am I asking them to do that? And what kinds of supports am I going to put into place so that they can accomplish those tasks successfully? So I really believe that it is a course design tool and that if you do it well, a well-designed syllabus really will show students exactly how they get from point A to B and the kinds of supports that are available to really enhance their learning journey along the way. Faculty were to use the syllabus as a way to redesign. Where in the syllabus should they start? Well, that is not an easy question. <laughs> you know, I tell faculty they have two choices when they're thinking about redesigning their syllabus. You can take the big approach, which is the course design approach, which is going to be looking at your course learning outcomes and then looking at what kinds of assessments or assignments are aligned to those learning outcomes. And then what I usually do for this big approach is ask them to think about what are the key summative assessments that you're looking for, and then work backwards from there using the backwards design process and determine what kind of formative assessments they need to use. And then as you start to craft the way your course is going to be developed, I say take your course outline, your schedule of what you're going to do in week one, week two, week three, and start to plug in those summative assessments and then start to plug in the formative assessments that you've identified. And then that will help you determine what needs to happen in week one, two, or three to help them be successful in those tasks. So it's really using that backwards design. I like to say it starts with the learning outcomes, it shifts over to the assessments that you're going to use, and then it starts to move into the course outline or sequence of topics. That would be really important. But I said to you, there's kind of two ways the faculty can begin to redesign their syllabus. This is the big way in the way that I would really love faculty to do it. But if someone's saying to me, the semester's starting next week, like that's just too monumental of a task, you cannot engage in this process in a day or two. It takes a significant chunk of time for you to really reevaluate what it is that you're trying to accomplish. So there's also a lot of takeaways in this book about how you could do things literally in five minutes or less that would enhance the motivation and engage students in learning. For example, I did a workshop on my campus where we had a syllabus redesign summer camp. And at the beginning of the semester, we had faculty submit their current syllabi. And at the end, we had them submit their final syllabi. And the transformation just from a visual perspective alone was really incredible. So if you didn't even look deeply at the design piece, for instance, having a nice photo to draw students in that's related to your course content. There was a biology faculty member who put this amazing, great, engaging skeleton on the front page. And that really was much more effective than having her first syllabi, which had all rules and regulations. 
statement, you know, do this, don't do that. And a welcome statement and a picture of yourself. Really just some of those kinds of elements really can make a difference. There's some research studies also that support adding a few additional words, like please come and talk to me, makes it much more likely that a student will come and talk to you. And it communicates that you want them to come and talk to you. There are some very easy fixes. Changing it from formal language, such as the professor will and the student will, to I am going to, and you will do this. Just using that more personal language can really help. So those fixes are literally, you could do it in five minutes or less if you want to make a couple of minor changes to increase motivation. But the overall course design is obviously a much bigger process. I'm not going to pretend it's not. (laughs) I think it's always a good reminder that you can always do small things before you can Mm -hmm. jump into a big thing and that the big thing is valuable. We were laughing at the beginning of what you were talking about a minute ago because I did the same exact thing here where I did a syllabus workshop that was a complete course redesign workshop. Mm -hmm. And I suggested we rename it in the future as a course design or redesign, but maybe leaving it as a syllabus workshop might work. (laughs) Yeah, I think you'll get more people to participate. (laughs) It's less scary. It's sneaky. It's a sneaky (laughs) way of getting in. And it also really allows faculty to walk away with something very practical, tangible that they actually have done as evidence of participating in that workshop. And that's great for administrators to see as well. It's a good point. So you talked a little bit about the syllabus as a tool for faculty to help think about organizing their class and redesigning it and making sure that students are going to learn what we're hoping that they're going to learn. Can you talk a little bit about how the syllabus is a tool for students? Sure. I think it's really critical for students to not just take this document and put it aside, but to recognize the value that it has. And I will tell you that students who see a more in-depth, comprehensive syllabi have a much more positive perception of the faculty member and also of the student experience and being in that class. From the student perspective, it's motivational for them to know that they have a faculty member that cares enough to put together this really comprehensive package. Having a long syllabus that does not have any visual tools in it and is overwhelming, whether it's legalese, that is something that students are not going to use much. But when you create a syllabus that's motivational and engaging and visually effective, students will use that document and they really will appreciate it. Now, they do need reminders about how to use that. I think that it is a document that all of us, quite frankly, emphasize in the first day or first week of the semester and then often don't revisit except for to say it's in the syllabus which may or may not help a student if they're having trouble navigating it. So I'm a very big fan of making sure that we make it a document that is student-friendly. If it is a longer document, including a table of contents, so that they know they don't need to read all of this. Maybe the last half of the syllabus is the rubric section with specifics on the assignment, that they just need to know it's there when the time comes for them to look at it. So I will often encourage students to view the syllabus very much like their textbook. You don't need to read the entire textbook during the first week of class, but you certainly need to know what's in the textbook so you're not just focused on chapter one. You need to acclimate yourself to all of the information that's in the text and what kinds of topics and resources are included. Well, the same goes for the syllabus. So really helping them use it as a resource and not feeling like they need to read it and memorize it, but instead use it as a tool to help them be successful. One of the things you suggest is doing a screencast with the syllabus, perhaps to make Mm -hmm. sure that students do look at it and to make it a bit more welcoming. Could you talk just a little bit about that? The screencast, I think, is a very valuable strategy, especially in the online class, but it can also be helpful in an in-person class. We all know that sometimes students are adding and dropping in the beginning of the semester and might miss an important conversation. And this really allows you to communicate about the syllabus to students. 
In addition, I will tell you that I have had students, I tend to have a fairly lengthy syllabi, (laughs) as you can imagine. Based on my textbook, I like to include a lot of resources. And I have had students say to me, when I got the syllabus via email from you, I really was overwhelmed and I was ready to run away from this class. I thought it was going to be a lot of work because it was a long syllabus. And once you explained it and we started to see the resources in it, I discovered that's not the case at all. So I think that having that personal touch and the nonverbals that you can really communicate through a screencast with a web video as well as the audio really does help students understand the value of the syllabus. And we have so many great online tools now like Screencast-O-Matic that are free, things like that, that you can really easily do that in a short period of time to do an introduction. And students can refer back to that as they need to throughout the semester. Talk a little bit about the kinds of things you would recommend faculty highlight or introduce about the syllabus on the first day. You mentioned identifying some of the resources and things in it, but as you know, there's a lot of faculty that call the first couple class days syllabus days, and some of them actually read the syllabus to the students. What would you recommend? Well, I certainly would not recommend reading the (laughs) syllabus to the students. That is not engaging. I think that the part of the syllabus that doesn't get as much attention as it should is the why are we together. The syllabus communicates the purpose of the class, the goals of the class, and what are the takeaways that they're going to get as a result of being in this class. Students, what they're going to immediately want to know is about the grade, right? They go directly to the page that has information on the grade and the assignments that they need to do. But if they go there first, they're missing the big picture. So I think that we as faculty have a wonderful opportunity, whether it's through a screencast or live in a regular classroom setting, to emphasize the learning outcomes of the course in a user-friendly way, not necessarily reading the learning outcomes, but to passionately explain why this course matters so much and the value of the course and the skills and not just the knowledge that they're going to get, but really the experience and the confidence they're going to get as a result of being in this course. So I really find that to be the most important piece to emphasize. And then helping them see the direct correlation and connection between what it is that they're going to achieve and those learning experiences. So whether they're assignments or assessments, the why behind all of those. So they don't just view it as a big, long checklist of this is what I have to do because it's a college course, but they understand that that's the roadmap that's going to help them accomplish all of those tasks. So for instance, if I can give you one example, quizzing is something that not every faculty member does. Sometimes it's more of a more high stakes midterm final kind of situation. But faculty who really want to provide that opportunity for students to have formative assessments along the way would also include quizzing. And when you do that, what happens is that you're helping students learn those skills along the way and help them self-regulate whether or not they're on task to achieve the learning outcomes. But students may view them as busy work or that you don't believe they're going to read without being held accountable. By explaining the why and the rationale and bringing some of the research in on the testing effect and explaining to them that the reason for me doing this is because the research shows that if you test yourself, you are much more likely to learn that content and it will stick with you throughout much longer periods of time. So providing the why, I think, is probably the most important part that I would bring their attention to. And I think that we don't do that enough as faculty. Just as a plug for a future podcast, Michelle Miller will be a guest in a few weeks where she'll be talking about the testing effect and retrieval practice. Terrific. But that is an issue. Students see testing as something negative. It's not something they find quite as enjoyable. So providing that rationale is really useful. Students don't always buy it, but the more you can convince them and the more evidence you can provide, 
the more likely it is that they'll see the benefits. Yeah, John and I have talked about this before that when I started doing that in my design classes, which is a place where testing is not as common, I had students actually asking for more, which I found to be very bizarre initially. (laughs) You don't generally have students asking for more tests or quizzes, but when they started realizing how it was helping keep them on track, they actually found them really valuable. And helping them assess their learning and help improve their own metacognition of what they know and what they don't know can be really useful. One of the things that you have in your syllabus is a teaching statement. Can you talk a little bit about why you include that and why you recommend including that? Because that's not something you commonly see in a syllabus. Absolutely. In fact, there are a couple of elements that I think are essential if you want to use the syllabus as a motivational tool. And I see the teaching statement as being one of the key elements. It's an opportunity for you to start to build a relationship with your students, and it gives you a chance to share some background about who you are and why you're passionate about the subject and what they can expect to happen during class. As we all know, the professor-student rapport is probably one of the most important predictors of success. Students who have professors who they believe care about them and are interested and engaged are much more likely to be successful than students who have faculty who are much more not engaged and maybe not as connected to them. So I believe that we could use the syllabus to begin developing that relationship because we often send this out prior to even meeting a student for the very first time. And it also might be something that is shared on some kind of management system within the university or college setting for students to decide which classes to take. So it can invite them to why they should be taking your class. I mean, it really is a wonderful way for you to share a little bit about yourself and your professional background expertise and passion. You also suggest in your book that the syllabus can serve as a communication tool, and it also makes it easier to be transparent in terms of how you grade and letting students know this, and that can increase equity or at least a perception of equity. Could you talk a little bit about that? I think it's really critical that we are being as explicit and as transparent as we can be. There are going to be some students who can more easily connect those dots than others, and when we make the dots connected for them, We're equaling the playing field to ensure that all of our students know what it is that they need to do in order to get to the finish line and how the different tasks relate to one another. So the more you can communicate and ensure that some of the students who may not naturally see those connections can see those connections, I think that really does improve learning and the academic experience for all students. You mentioned earlier about referencing the syllabus and having students use the syllabus as a tool throughout the semester. You also mentioned that sometimes faculty have a tendency to say it's on the syllabus without really providing much more guidance than that. Can you talk a little bit about ways that you recommend using the syllabus at farther points in the semester to help support students and continue to motivate students beyond just the beginning of the class? I think that is critical. Many of us do activities on the very first day of class. I'm hoping that many of us are not reading the syllabus anymore and we're starting to get more engaging strategies at the start of the semester. I know folks do a syllabus quiz and things of that nature. I actually think that having a group quiz format, something that's more interactive is great. I do jigsaw classroom exercises at the beginning of the semester on the syllabus. They're diving into that resource and understanding it and reporting back and teaching their classmates about the different section that they were assigned to. I think setting the stage at the beginning of the semester is really important, but we can't stop there. We need to then follow through 
and revisit the syllabus throughout the semester. So what I typically do is I will often ask students to, at the beginning of class, I always ask them to have their syllabus with them. And I might give them a few minutes. And I do this activity called dusting off the cobwebs, where they have to recall what we talked about last class and maybe from the readings. And then we can look forward. So after we clean up our house in terms of where we were, then what's coming next? So what are we talking about today? How does this link up with the concept that we talked about last class? And then what's coming up in terms of what's due? So instead of me putting on the board or on a PowerPoint slide, next week, don't forget, you have to submit the first part of your project or whatever it might be. I'm having students give those daily reminders. So you can literally spend five minutes or less in a class and maybe once a week. It doesn't have to be necessarily every class, but maybe Mondays will be your dusting day and looking forward opportunity. So I think that's really helpful. The other time where I spend a little bit more time on it is when there is a big project that's coming up. So at this point of the semester, I will often have students work in either a partner group or a small group. And in that situation, I'm asking them to look at pages 12 to 14 that outline the details related to assignment one and the rubric of how you'll get assessed on assignment one. I want you to review that. I want you to put that in your own words, tell your classmate about what it is, and then you have an opportunity to ask me any questions about it. So I'm basically training them to engage in that process. Again, this doesn't need to eat up a tremendous amount of class time. It can be a few minutes. But by doing that, you end up often getting better products to grade, which makes your life much happier when it's time for all the papers to be handed in. Because even though you've put it in the syllabus, it doesn't mean that they've looked in the syllabus or they knew where to look. Or maybe something didn't make sense to them and they were not comfortable asking without the opportunity given to them in that very explicit way. So I find that that really is a very helpful process. I also like to do an activity kind of mid-semester, looking at the learning outcomes. So going back to saying, okay, so here's what we said we were going to be able to learn and be able to do at the end of the semester. We're about halfway done. I want you to look at the learning outcomes and do a self-assessment. Where are you at? On a scale of one to five, what do you need to do in order to get to the level five at the end of the semester? Some of that's going to happen, obviously, in class and through the assignments. But what else can you do to ensure that you'll achieve all of those learning outcomes? So I like to use it in a self-regulatory way as well. One of the things related to that is you suggest the use of an assignment grade tracking form. I've always kept my grade book in Blackboard so students can see where they are, but students don't always seem to pay much attention to that. Having them create their own assignment grade tracking might be useful. Could you talk a little bit about what the form is and why you recommend that? Sure. I do think that with our current technologies, Blackboard Canvas, things of that nature, the LMS systems really do have a pretty robust gradebook feature where students can easily track their progress because in order for them to self-regulate, they need some external data to see if they're on track or not. To me, as long as they're engaged in that checking and self-regulatory behavior, I don't think it matters whether it's definitely in the syllabus or in Canvas or Blackboard. But unfortunately, not every faculty member is using the gradebook to its full capacity. So sometimes students are left wondering about their grade, and I want them to feel in charge of knowing how to do it. I also think that they have a hard time sometimes seeing the weighting of assignments so that they might view a smaller assignment as being equal to that of a larger one and not recognizing the significance that it can have on your grade. In the absence of some of the technology tools, and there are great apps for this too, so if your student has a faculty member that is not using an LMS gradebook, they can go ahead and download an app, and I think that's a great way to track it as well. But including something like that on the syllabus helps them see the breakdown and the weighting of the 
different grades so they can see how that final grade is determined. Because I think you're right in the LMSs, I see that students are often looking only at the current calculated grade rather than looking at all of the pieces of how that grade came to be. (laughs) So anything we can do to help them better understand the grading process and how those elements go into the final grade, I think is useful. In your book and also in the example syllabi that you've provided both on your website and also in your book, you talk a little bit about your assignment sheets with rubrics and things completely spelled out. So not something that's more generalized, but something incredibly specific. Can you talk a little bit about the choice to do that and the advantages of doing something like that? I think that we all provide students with details about our assignments. It's about where does that happen? For some of us, we think that that should happen outside of the syllabus in the LMS in a different place under assignments or some other tab rather than being in the syllabus itself. I think it's really helpful for students to have a complete package in the syllabus. Now, just because I think that doesn't mean that it's true, right? (laughs) So actually, I did a really neat study with a colleague of mine, Krista Quillen, at Middlesex County College, where we examined the student perception of syllabi length, and we shared different syllabi. There was a six-page, a nine-page, and a 15-page syllabus, and they were randomly assigned to different groups. What we discovered was that students who were reviewing a medium or long, which was nine or 15 page syllabus actually found that syllabus to be more positive. So they had a more positive perception of the faculty member in terms of being motivated and things of that nature. In addition, we asked a specific question of the student. Would you rather have all of the details about your assignments in one place in the syllabus? Or is that not what you want? Would you rather just know I have to write a paper and then have those details about the paper be provided at the point that you need them and in a different place within your learning management system? And 66% of the students said we want it all in one place. I think one of the challenges that our students have is that every faculty member sets up their LMS page a little differently. And I know colleges really work hard to try to have some consistency across the different course shells that exist, but students really do struggle with trying to find that information. If we can guarantee to students that all of the essential information you need about your assignments and your learning path are in the syllabus, then I think that makes a lot of sense. I really think it's important for faculty and students to understand that it's almost like an addendum to the syllabus, but it is in that document so that they don't need to get overwhelmed by it on day one, but they know that it's a resource, very much like I had said before, like the textbook is. I think that's an interesting point. A lot of our students are in five classes, and if there's five different ways of doing things and it's organized five different ways with five different evaluation systems, it can get a little overwhelming after a while. It's a lot to keep track of. We often complain that students don't keep track of things, but we certainly don't help it. (laughs) We'd like to reduce a cognitive load. Yeah, that's for sure. Unfortunately, it's the case. And sometimes we need to get ourselves back in from the student lens to see what does life look like from their perspective. And if I could just say one other thing about the it's in the syllabus comment, I mean, believe me, I pour my heart and soul into creating my syllabus. My husband often laughs at me because he's like, haven't you taught this course before? You look like you haven't taught this before because I'm spending hours and hours and hours. And I just taught it last semester, but I know it could be so much better. I'm trying to find ways to communicate it better. So I know that the information is in the syllabus because I put it there. I spent many hours doing that. But if a student is active enough and engaged enough to ask me a question about an assignment or the course, and I just say it's in the syllabus, my 
well, this is a long document. I do need to navigate them to which part of the syllabus it's in because my syllabus is probably a little different than other syllabi that they have looked at. So I feel like it's so easy and frustrating for us when students may not have looked carefully before asking us. So that's a skill we need to help them learn. But maybe they did look and they didn't find it as quickly as they would like to. Let's be honest, you and I also are not going to spend an enormous amount of time looking at a website if we can't find what we're looking for right away. We're going to ask someone. So we want to make it as easy to navigate as possible. And having consistency, I think, across different courses does help. Not that you need to have a rigid, standardized syllabus that looks exactly the same in every course. I think you need to have a little bit of room for the flavor and the personality of the course to show. Those are things that we just forget about. We forget that it can be really overwhelming to look at documents, yet we all complain about the same thing when someone else makes a document that we have to look at and we can't find something. (laughs) So it's good to double check ourselves. So I appreciate the reminder. (laughs) Absolutely. One of the things that needs to be in a syllabus to some extent is the policies. There's college policies that might have a particular language that you have to include, but then also maybe what some of your own policies are as as an instructor. How do you suggest including those in a motivational, inspiring and supportive way? (laughs) Because sometimes they don't feel very inspiring or supportive. That's a great question. In fact, I have noticed that probably one of the biggest demotivators of a syllabus is the policy section. And many times faculty add more and more policies based on negative experiences that they've had. So if something happens in a classroom setting and they're like, I need a policy on that. So I'm going to add another policy about that. And it starts to become this really big, long laundry list. And clearly we have to have policies. I'm not saying we shouldn't, but I think the way in which we communicate our policies really do matter. When we have a list of don't don't do this, don't cheat, don't plagiarize, all these kinds of rules and regulations. We're kind of communicating to students that we think you're going to do this, so I'm going to set you straight right now. Rather than using more positive language, instead, we could communicate the same policy. I like to use the academic integrity one. So instead of saying, don't plagiarize, Instead, if you have a policy about academic integrity and the importance of why that matters so much and how everyone is expected to uphold academic integrity and engage in honest actions, that I think sets a very different beginning to that policy. The other piece is that we sometimes create policies that promote, I think, more achievement gaps and actually gets back to that question you asked me earlier about equity, because many of our policies do not promote equity. I'll take a late work policy, for instance, and I recognize the fact that we all need to be timely with our tasks. I mean, in the world of work, people are going to expect you to complete tasks on time. And I recognize that that's a very important skill. However, I also know that we are all human beings with a life on the side, you know, so that life happens sometimes that may prevent us from being on time with a task. I know I personally have not always been on time. I'm a very timely person, but there have been times when I have missed a deadline and haven't been exactly where I needed to be at the time I should have been there. It's not a pattern, but it does happen. So I think we need to have policies that are building in some of the flexibility that communicates to students that we respect them. We recognize that they have a life outside of school or at least outside of our class. Sometimes our policies don't even seem to recognize that they have other classes. (laughs) Our class is the only one. So students complain about that quite a bit, thinking that you're looking at this only from your angle and not recognizing that this is one of many classes that I'm taking. 
When you think about policies such as that, it's important to communicate it in a way that isn't taxing on your time so that you're taking late work every minute of every day, but is respectful. So very simple way to do that is here's the policy. I expect you to be on time with tasks, especially if you're doing a group task and your classmates are dependent on you. I tend to be a little bit more rigid with my policies when it's a group related task versus an individual task. But I also know that life happens. And if you are in a situation where you're not able to meet a deadline, please come and talk to me. Because if you put in a policy that says no late work is accepted, everything must be handed in on time. Well, certainly you won't have to deal with any late work that helps you with your time management. But it really is inequitable because the student who comes from a culture where it's fine to challenge authority might come to you and say, my grandmother passed away last week. I have this really horrific thing happen in my life. And many of us, I know I, myself, I had at some point a no makeup policy. It wasn't a real policy. If you came to me and it was a good reason, then I gave you an extension. But I only did that if you came to me. I did have no makeup policy on the syllabus. So the problem with that is that there are certain groups of individuals that are not going to challenge authority and take your word at face value. So now you've put them at a distinct disadvantage in the class. So I think it's important for our policies to do a couple of things. One is, first of all, they should be accurate. So I did not really have a no makeup policy. I had a makeup if you have a good reason. So it, it wasn't accurate. So now my policy is much more reflective of my current practices. I expect you to be on time, but if something happens, communicate with me and we will see what we can do. It's not promising them the world, but it's certainly promising them at least a conversation. And second, in addition to having it be clearly communicated, it really needs to be equitable so that everyone gets an opportunity and it's not a case-by-case -case situation where they're more willing to challenge authority. They're going to be more likely to get a positive outcome. One of the things that you mentioned earlier is shifting the language in the syllabus to something that's more personal from something that feels more like legalese or something. In those circumstances where an institution might impose a particular policy that's written in a particular way that doesn't match the voice of the rest of the document, how do you suggest dealing with that in a syllabus when it might be required of you? I think this is one of the big challenges that faculty face is when there's required elements that are not very motivational in nature. So first of all, I would say, try to start a conversation on your campus about revising that language. Not necessarily the policy, that's what the policy is going to be, but can we introduce it in a different way? I would say if you can do that, that would be ideal because then that would be benefiting all of the students and all of the classes across your entire campus if they're required. So I think that's probably the point of intervention that I would encourage you to take. And you could go back and refer to some of the ideas in the text or talking with colleagues about other ways to better word some of that policy language. If you're not able to switch the language or you want a quicker fix while that conversation's happening, happening, I think it's appropriate, and again, you need to find out on your campus if it is, to maybe have an introductory statement. The next section of the syllabus is going to be the institutional policies that every faculty member needs to include. So it's not saying they're badly worded, but you're saying that they're different from, like, you can definitely just see that I need to include these, and I certainly wouldn't have them unless you're required to on the first page or two. Let the more positive motivational pieces be front and center, and then have the policies be later on in the syllabus. So almost like you have a cover page or some kind of introduction before getting into the more typical policy language, I guess, if you need to include it, I think can be helpful. I've done things where, for example, around intellectual integrity, there's a campus statement and they label it as such. And then my policy which interprets that and puts it into context and is in my language. So the same idea that you have about introductory or it's you're kind of separating the two and making it clear like whose is whose. Mm -hmm. And I think that sometimes has helped students too. But I've always found that to be jarring. 
Yes, I would agree. I think that definitely is. And I like your approach really of summarizing it because sometimes those policies that we get handed down are very lengthy and students probably aren't going to read them. So even if you gave the one or two sentence summary of what that meant, translation is, (laughs) you know, this is what you need to do. Be honest, you know, like engage in honest action. What really matters. We all want a good reputation and we all want to learn. So in order to do that, these are the kinds of strategies that you need to engage in. And going to the integrity topic again, I think so many times students are unintentionally plagiarizing, not always necessarily doing it on purpose. So maybe helping them understand how they can better learn how to cite sources appropriately or how to paraphrase more effectively. So pointing them to resources that are going to help them with all the tasks. In your book, in addition to providing a lot of great resources about the syllabus and a lot of great recommendations and the evidence behind them, you also provide some very nice sample syllabi at the end of the book. And it's a great resource. And your publisher has very gracefully provided us with a discount code to any of our listeners, which is DAMS. And you can do that by going to the Stylus Publishing website. We'll include a link to that in the show notes. John, if you don't mind, I'd like to also share my website, which is just www.scholarlyteaching.org. If you go to that website, you will see several other teaching and learning resources, including several sample syllabi. And the syllabi that we used in the research study that I mentioned earlier on the length of the syllabus are provided there as well. There's also really good videos, a syllabi checklist. There's some really great resources on the website, so I definitely recommend checking that out. And also information about your other books. Yes. Thanks for that, John. Appreciate it. We always end our podcast with the question, what are you doing next? Well, it's interesting that you asked that. I am looking at options right now, but I'm very much interested in staying connected to the teaching and learning space and how we can improve what we do in the classroom. I'm spending some time thinking about moving that up to a a higher level and engaging administration in some of the conversations that we're having about teaching and learning and putting the teaching and learning centers kind of front and center really in conversations about student learning and engagement on campuses. So for instance, I work in the community college system, as you know, there's a, a national movement called Guided Pathways. And this national movement is all about improving the success outcomes of students. And it happens through a variety of ways. They talk about making sure our programs are clear so that they're defined and students know how to get from point A to point B. They talk about helping students choose a pathway and stay on a pathway. And they also talk about ensuring learning. But having been a part of this national conversation, the ensuring learning really is very much an afterthought, I think, unfortunately. I feel like we're dancing around the classroom. So I'd like to take some of this work that I've been doing that's been very directly helpful to the faculty and try to shift it to being helpful to the community college leadership as well as leadership at the four-year universities as well to emphasize the importance of good and effective teaching practices. So we'll see where that takes me. I'm not really sure how that's going to transpire, but I did just present on that topic at the pod conference. I'm putting teaching and learning centers right in front and center in the Guided Pathways movement, getting them at the table these conversations. So I'm very interested in further pursuing that at this point. That sounds like that could be really valuable to a lot of the faculty because translating that information to the administration is always really useful in finding support and all working together to have these really strong outcomes for students. Absolutely. Well, thank you. This has been a fascinating conversation and this is a book I'm going to recommend to all of our faculty. Yeah. So glad you were able to join us. Well, thank you. I really appreciate the invitation. And I hope that everyone listening is able to design motivational syllabi. And if that happens, our students are the ones who will benefit at the end of the day. So thank all of you for listening and for supporting students in their learning journey. 
If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on teaforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer. Editing assistance provided by Kim Fisher, Brittany Jones, Gabrielle Perez, Joseph Santarelli Hansen, and Dante Perez.